Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have a lecture from Rich Bledsoe on harlotry in the Bible, and he also spends a good deal of time talking about cities. As always, for more information about upcoming events at Theopolis, as well as links to our blog, social media handles, and our YouTube channel, you can find links down there in the show notes. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is Rich Bledsoe discussing harlotry in the Bible. Good morning. Good morning. I've been exhorted to speak up. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. What? Yes, sir. I can't hear you. Yes, sir. All right, that's better. Let's, uh, actually, you know, it's true. All of us, the last time I preached in a church, they gave me one of these mics you put around your ear, and then you, and it comes out here, and then you whisper into it, and you kind of purr. We are so out of practice. Uh, uh, you, you all remember that famous account that Benjamin Franklin gives of being able to hear George Whitfield distinctly from a mile away. And that was with the mic turned way down. <laughs> so, thank you, Peter. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, the rest of your lectures on Rosenstock Husey. And uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about Rosenstock Husey myself, not I already asked Peter, I said, I'm not going to be encroaching on you if I do a little bit with this. And he said, no. So I feel safe. So let's open with prayer. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our Lord. And we thank you that um, that you have come to give us the fullness of all redemption, as we we're told in Colossians. We thank you for this fullness, and we thank you that you are gradually unfolding this fullness to us. And may we understand more and more of what Jesus Christ has brought to us. May we um, stand here today, in this time, and have some grasp of reality, some grasp of new things that you're doing in our midst. Help me, and help me to have at least a thing or two that's helpful to say so that we all might make some progress in our life with you collectively and individually. Bless us, send your spirit to us, inspire our speech, inspire our hearing, and uh, fill us with your spirit today. In the good name of Jesus, we pray to you, Father. Amen. Amen. That was good. That was a good amen. All right, who here can define superlapsarianism for me? Somebody define that? You thought I was kidding. I was serious. What's superlapsarianism? Oh, Stephen. Stephen's sitting back here snortling. Troy, what is it, Stephen? Superlapsarianism. Superlapsarianism. Show us how smart you are here. Logically ordered, God predetermines election and reprobation prior to creation and the fall. And so you are heaven or hell before sin or righteousness. 
is even in the equation. Okay, very good. That was very good. None of you understood a word he said, did you? No, that was very good. But did, did you have, yes? You're, you're going to say that's not the form you're looking for. No, that's fine. You're looking for that the uh, first thing that happens is the last thing. Logical. Well, you, you read my mind, your prophet. That, that actually is the point. That whether or not superlapsarianism is a good theological formulation of the decrees is questionable. Uh, Stephen was sitting over here chortling saying, no, it's not. He doesn't buy that. Whether infralapsarianism is a good formulation of the decrees is also questionable. Whether we can give a good formulation of the decrees is questionable. But, uh, but what is helpful, exactly what you said, is what's, what's true, what, what's sort of insightful about the superlapsarian scheme is it is true that in human life, the last the last thing that we act on tends to be the first thing that we thought about. The point, we're teleologically oriented. That is, to give a very simple example, if I wake up in the morning, I think, I have to go to the store and buy some bread. That's the first thought that I have. Now, I have to go through a whole bunch of actions to get to that last, that first thought. And the first thought is the last thing that happens. The first thing I have to do is I have to open my left eye. And then I have to open my right eye. And then I have to turn over. And then I have to sit up in bed. And then I have to put on my pants. And I have to put on my shirt. And I have to put on all the rest of my clothes. And then I have to go down to the, to the kitchen and get a cup of coffee. And on and on and get my card. So finally I get to the store. But what was... What was the moving, the motivating power behind all of my action was the, the very first thought that I had, which is I have to go to the store and get some bread. So, so that is uh, uh, often, that's the whole point of superlapsarianism. That God thought of something. He thought of the end, which is redemption and the glorification of Christ and his church, and then he did everything else to bring that to pass. And there has to be something true about that. You, you know, the details don't matter. There has to be something true about that. So if we're looking at, Peter just lectured to us about Rosenstock Husey, and, and uh, that, if you'd noticed, that was not the title of my lecture. The uh, title of my lecture was more interesting. <laughs> but I, I do want to talk just a little bit about his scheme uh, because uh, Rosenstock Husey's, at least his most famous book, is uh, called Out of Revolution, in which Peter described for us a little bit. And Out of Revolution is a rather superlapsarian book. The, the, what Rosenstock Husey says the human mind has done and he says we've done this quite subconsciously. It isn't as though we started out, we, we, we sort of uh, consciously decided to do this. But what the human mind did when the Christian era came into existence, the human mind began to create a new kind of civilization by going to the very end of the Bible first. And at the very end of the Bible, what you have is the last judgment. And he says, if you look at um, the first era of Christendom, what you find is that the first era of Christendom is completely 
consumed and absorbed with the idea of the last judgment. And that's true. And you find this, it's very obviously true. It's all summed up in Dante's Divine Comedy, which of course is all about last things. It's about heaven, purgatory, and hell. Uh, and this unquestionably was an obsession of the first era of Christendom. Well, the reason it had to be an obsession is because all of pagan, pagan thought moves in circles. Pagan time moves in circles. And what Christianity, what the Bible gives to us is time begins, time develops, and time ends. And it's cut in two with the coming of Jesus Christ, but it ends here with the last judgment. Um, so how is it that if you're going to become a Christian civilization, how is it that you get out of pagan cyclicalism? Well, you get out of pagan cyclicalism by anticipating the very end of the world. And that means that you now have a completely different relationship to time. You now have a relationship to time that time ends somewhere. We're all moving towards something. We're answerable at this point. So it's very different from paganism. So it began with the Last Judgment, and the Pope and the Emperor, the papacy, the purpose of the papacy was to keep the Antichrist from emerging, because the world would end when the Antichrist appeared, because Christ would appear with his breath to destroy the Antichrist, but the Antichrist could never arise as long as the Pope was being vigilant and was watching and keeping heretics and evil people from arising in the church and in Christian land. So as long as the Pope was being vigilant, and as long as the Emperor as his partner were being vigilant with the two swords, time could not end, but what you 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 elongated time by anticipating the end. Alright, so that's where Rosenstock QC says Christian civilization begins. And then what happens in his scheme of things, this is very creative and and I'm glad Peter wasn't going to talk about this because this is just really fun to say all over again. He says what, what he's, he says happens then subconsciously with the human mind is that as the human race develops, you begin to move backward through the Bible. You're moving backward through the Bible and every era of Christendom looks at some new per, a portion of Scripture and that portion of Scripture that you look at interestingly, is moving backward. So by the time you get to the last revolution that he writes about, which was in 1917, the Bolshevik Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution has carried us all the way back to Genesis 1-2, which is the chaos, Genesis 1-2. Uh, and, and it says that uh, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the, the, it was without form and it was a void. It was the tohu and the bohu. It was chaos. It was just pure chaos. And the Russian Revolution, in fact, not just the Russian Revolution, but the whole of the 20th century, has been obsessed with the idea of chaos and the creativity of chaos. If you take a, if you take a dip in the chaos something creative will, will emerge out of that. So if you have political revolution, if you're a Bolshevik or if you're a fascist, and you destroy everything as violently as possible, then somehow a utopia will emerge out of that. And the sciences have also attempted to ground themselves in chaos. The, the whole metaphysical foundation of all of the sciences in the 20th century is what? 
It's a, it's a whole metaphysic. What is it? Come on. Come on. What? Evolution. Darwinism. Which says chaos is ultimate. Now, the, the reason I'm doing this little introduction is because because I'm supposed to be talking about whores. Isn't it obvious now what I'm doing? This my little addition to Rosenstock UC. Rosenstock UC published out of Revolution, wasn't it 1934, Peter? Something like that. About 1934. Published, published his great work in 1934. And the world has obviously moved on from that time. And he talks about, in that book and elsewhere, he describes this era that we are in as being something, sometimes it says 300 years, sometimes it says 500 years. Uh, I actually wonder if things aren't speeding up. I, it may be the case that we will, we will have various elements of this era for three to five hundred years. I can imagine that. But I cannot imagine that it's really possible for uh, humanity to exist in the chaos, Genesis 1-2, for three to five hundred years. That's inconceivable. Everything just disintegrates. You can't build... There's not very much you can build on chaos, and everything is disintegrating. So where do you go? And it's very, actually, it's very easy to see what's happening, I think. I, this is my own, the Bledsoe edition to Rosenstock, you see. There is one pericope in Scripture beyond the Last Judgment. What is it? Pardon? Yeah, but it's, it all takes a particular form. Pardon? Yeah, but it gets bigger than that. Uh, yeah, that's right. And now, now add to that. What was set up here was marriage. Well, actually, it's what we've already talked about. Jim has already talked about it extensively. Pardon? Marriage supper of the Lamb. All right, go on. The city. The city. That's exactly right. So the last pericope is the New Jerusalem. And what I think is happening is that we've gotten all the way... I mean, I think this is very creative and it's very insightful and it seems to be true and he works it out with astonishing detail. I mean, it's not like he just sort of made this up and thought it was cool and then tried to fit the facts to it. There's a lot of scholarship that indicates the human race, in fact, has done this. Uh, and one of the test cases he has for this, by the way, is... The French Revolution and the American Revolution are very closely aligned in time. But he shows with a considerable amount of detail how the French Revolution, excuse me, the American Revolution pits itself with Noah. That is, the, the American continent is a, it's a new world and a ship lands there and the world starts all over again. That's how the Americans thought. Now, you couldn't say that now because, in fact, it was full of what we call Native Americans. But then, that's how they thought of it. But the French Revolution, which is almost at the same place in time, just separated by a few years, they see themselves not as the descendants of Noah, but they see themselves as being Adamic, the Rousseauian, the, uh, the uh, innocent savage in the garden the unfallen Adam that will recreate the world with unfallen reason. They're very closely aligned, but there's this backward move uh, with current documents at that time that's very easily demonstrable. Very, it's just an interesting kind of test case. All right. So you move backward, you get back here to Genesis 1-2 to the chaos, and there's nowhere to go. You can't go any further back, so what you've got to do is start all over again. 
but there's only one place left to go. We've already emphasized the last judgment, and that has never fallen out of the Christian civilized perspective. We're full of we're you know we're dealing with a, an apocalypse right now. If all of you don't stop driving your automobiles, we will heat the globe up by 1,000 degrees and global warming will end. You know, what I, I heard an Episcopal clergyman tell me that if we weren't careful, if we uh, didn't stop all of this burning of fossil fuels, that half of the species in existence were going to die. And he had a whole bunch of other... He believes all this. this is what he preaches every week, you know, practically. So the, the apocalypse, you see, is with us all the time. So that's never gone away, and none of these things ever go away. But the thing that we're adding now that's coming into the self-consciousness of humanity is the city. And the idea of the city, you know, Jim, Jim actually has already spoken about this. It's every, we talk about a global village. This is on everybody's lips. You look at, you know, it's the, it is the big global warming Poster, you sw- that that one. It's really a wonderful photograph that was taken outside the window of some satellite or some satellite photograph of the Earth. So here's we all see ourselves now as we're one globe, we're one people, we're one city. That this really has become a part of human consciousness, and everywhere you turn, you see this about the city, and you see that about the city, and you, the metropolis has really become the center and. I've spoken on this before in previous years. I'm getting a doctor of ministry from a school. The whole emphasis of it is on metropolitan ministry. We still have some kind of image of the missionary marching with his pith cap into the jungle, but that's not what missionaries are doing anymore. They're all going to cities because that's where everybody's pouring into, is into cities. Well, the great image of the city now is, is that the, it's the image in the Bible is the image of the New Jerusalem. Now, that is that seems to be the very first thought in God's mind is this city, the New Jerusalem. But it's the very last thing you find in the Bible. Uh, now, to sort of sort of kick things off in a little different direction, it's interesting. I've been reading Jane Jacobson, who is a Urban urbanologist, and I'm. By the way, I'm appalled when I go to the library. So you'd like to think that you know something, but I go to the library and I look at the number of shelves that are filled with books on urbanology, and I see I don't know anything. I can't. You know, there must be three million volumes on urbanology just that have been written in the last uh, forty or fifty years. Anyway. A little volume that she's written, she makes a very interesting claim. She says, one of the mythologies that has beclouded the human mind is that the way that economies work is they move from, that first you have agricultural economies and then you have city economies. And it gradually moves from from the agricultural, then to the village, then to the city, and they're all sort of an evolution from each other. And she said, this is wrong. She said, the city comes first. Now, you know, historically, that can't quite be true. That uh, from the very beginning, we find that in in the Bible, that uh, the human race is agricultural or 
you're involved in animal husbandry from the very outset, and it would appear, I mean, you just we, we just think about it in some obvious sense, it would seem like the first thing you would have to do, you'd have to be fairly self-sufficient, you would have to grow your own food and so on. As a, as a general truism, that has to be the case, but there's still something wrong with it, and that this is almost like superlapsarian. And the, she, makes, she makes this point through history, and I don't know how far back you can carry it in terms of actual factuality, but you could almost make a superlapsarian point out of this, that the first thought in the human mind somehow, let me put it this way, somehow the city is logically prior to the country. Somehow the agricultural world is secondary to what goes on in the urban world. Now she writes a whole long book about this. It's fascinating. She points out that that it is it is virtually without exception any place any place we can study this. What we find is that um, what we find is that um, it is it is economies developed in the city that revolutionized the farm. It is economies and consumer demands that first start in the city that revolutionize everything that happens out there in the country. The country is more dependent upon the city than the city is upon the country. So she says the reverse is really true. My point being, she's being sort of superlapsarian about this. The very first thought in God's mind is the city, and the country is what sort of becomes a corollary to it, or is what develops certain things the city needs. So the city is very first. Now, maybe you have to get to almost the year 2000 or maybe the year 1950 or whatever, somewhere in the 20th century, for the human race to begin to dawn on the human race that the city is actually really prior to everything. It might have taken us that long, it might have taken that long to dawn upon us that, that this, this, uh, this is somehow a reality. And, and now we've all we've been living this out, in fact, for centuries. Centuries and centuries. She's got all kinds of data to show this is true. It's always what happens in the city that revolutionizes and develops the country rather than the other way around. But it's taken us this long to, to, to come to a, a realization and grasp of this. But it is true that we all know, for example, from, uh, let's say, I don't know, I'll almost pick out an arbitrary date, but let's say 1880 to 1990, those are almost arbitrary dates, and, and my figures here are not going to be very exact, but we know in the United States, for example, that in 1880, uh, probably about 97% of the population of the United States was in the country, was on the farm. All of you, all, probably probably 97% of the people in this room. <coughs> there, there will be some exception probably. But your grandparents and your great-grandparents and maybe even your parents lived on the farm. How many of you had parents who lived on the farm? It's a pretty, pretty good, how many of you had grandparents who lived on the farm? See, the percentage goes up there. What about great-grandparents? It's all, be almost everybody at that point. Now, there'd be a few exceptions to that, but about 97% about of the population lived on the farm and about 3% lived in the city. By the time you get to 1990, it's reversed. 
<coughs> all right. <coughs> and that, what, what's happened in America is happening all over the world, and it's a kind of microcosm of exactly what Jim talked about this morning, and actually, Jim, what was it, two, three years ago, you did a, your whole series of lectures was on this, which were, which were really, right, you remember that? You don't even remember that. Jim, Jim can't even remember his middle name this morning. He has not had enough donuts yet. But... Uh, uh, yeah, there is this. There, it, 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 you see, you see what would be true here in 1880, or what would have been true back in the time of of uh, Abraham, is maybe maybe in Abraham's time it was even more. But a very small percentage of people lived in the city. A very high percentage of people lived in the country, or were agricultural involved in the agricultural economy. But it was always the case that this 3% were logically prior and were, that the economy was always driven by that 3%. Always. Even though it wasn't very obvious. It's just gotten a whole lot more obvious as time has gone on. And what has happened over, over the span of the human race is that there is this... Uh, there is this move or this transition from the land to the city, and it's a slow transition. And uh, as we move back to the land now, this is the way Jim put it a few years ago, I like it. When we go back to the land now, we go back almost recreationally. We're not enslaved to the land. So we have, we have certain conservative theorists, for example, who lament that the urbanization that's all around us and would like us to live in the country, but we don't live in the country, even if we do go back to the country, we don't live in the country like our great-grandparents did. You know, you see those reality shows where these people have to live for, for a month like people did in 1890 and they about die. You can hardly believe how hard it was to live in the country. I lived in the country for, with my family, we owned two acres of land, had a horse where all my kids were growing up, and we didn't suffer it wasn't hard because we had all the amenities of the city. We were out in the country to have fun, to have a horse for our kids and to have, uh, to have nice cliffs behind us and a river across the street. We were not like the dairy farmers that I lived next door to when I was in seminary who worked 24 hours a day sometimes, who never went on vacations, who worked harder than horses could ever even think of working. We didn't live that way. So the point is, even if you go back to the land, you're not enslaved to the land. You go back to the land recreationally, more or less. But you have all this move. Uh, you have this transition. And this transition is not without problems. This transition is a very difficult transition. Hence, I come to my topic today. Aren't you glad? You figure, what on earth is he doing up there? If you will open to Luke chapter 7. Um, Luke chapter 7. Now, is all that clear to you, or do you want me to repeat it? <laughs> Jim wants me to repeat it. He didn't understand a word I said. All right, Luke chapter 7. Just that part right after, right after the superlapse area. Okay, that, that part. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll go back to that, but I'll go back to that later. All right, now Luke chapter 7, we have a, 
one of the stories, there are actually several stories that are like this in the Gospels. You find one of them uh, that's attached to the Gospel of John when a woman who commits adultery is brought to Jesus by a bunch of men and they want Jesus, they want to trap Jesus. You know that story. Uh, but there are several accounts that are similar to this, and I'm not interested this morning in disentangling, you know, doing a harmony of the Gospels. I don't know how it all fits together. I'm sure it does. But in the 36th verse, well, I'll just read a little bit of this. Then one of the, of the seventh chapter of Luke, then one of the Pharisees asked him, that is Jesus, to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city. Now, I want to emphasize this is a woman in the city. It's interesting that Luke puts that little detail in. It's a woman in the city who was a sinner. She's in the, in the city, and she's a sinner. When she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought in an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. And then the Pharisee who had invited him saw this and spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is, who is touching him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of it, because I think you're familiar with the story. One of the, one of the morals you can draw from this parable is don't ever ask Jesus to dinner at your house. He is a very embarrassing guest to have. All kinds of scandalous, embarrassing, terrible things happen. And then he will probably turn on you if you're the host and say things that will make you wish you were dead. So this this woman who is a sinner, now she's a sinner, what is she obviously? She's a harlot. I mean, it's pretty clear. She's a harlot. And uh, she comes to this completely respectable Pharisee's house, and she, you know, she weeps all over Jesus' feet, and she makes a big scene. This is not some woman you would have in your house under any circumstances unless Jesus was there. Like, don't ever ask Jesus to lunch. You don't know what's going to happen. And then after she commits all these scandalous acts and pours all this perfume all over Jesus, uh, then Jesus chews out Simon, who has a perfectly good case to make about how scandalous it is that this woman is there. You know the story. Now, uh, I want to point out a couple of things. And, and I, want to do, I want to do one more thing here. And I don't, even, I don't even know part of what I'm doing this morning. I'm going to raise some questions that I don't know how to answer. But, but if you've been around Biblical Horizons, you know that we believe we have certain dogmas around here that are more certain than the Trinity and the Incarnation. And we believe there are three types of human configurations. And what are those? They're testing you to see how you've been paying attention for the last 10 years. What? Death no! Do leave Burke. Who, who, who can do better than that? that no. That, no. What? Yes! Yes, Jim. Jim answered, answered the question correctly. You get a donut 
tribes, and what? What? Yeah, nations are monarch. We'll put nations here. That means monarchies. And then empires. All right? Now, uh, one of the... One of the uh, I think this, is, uh, this, is, uh, this isn't really a... It's a mild critique because nobody can do everything. But one of the criticisms of Rush Dooney and his Institutes of Biblical Law... When you know you read Rush Dooney, and sometimes you—I th- mean, actually, Rush Dooney and North are really, as as Frame points out, they're a whole lot more sophisticated in their application of law than their critics ever allow them to be, and that is true. It's the critics who tend to have the wooden, the the wooden literalistic reading of how the law is applied, not Rush Dooney and North, or their associates. Uh, but it is probably true that uh, uh, somebody, Peter, was this the article? Who was it that wrote the article or said something? I think it was you. You wrote that review, the lady who reviewed Rush Dooney, and she said he's profoundly, what was the word she used? Anti-city, uh, but she used a different word. Anti, uh, oh, come on, it was your review. It's profoundly, what? Rush Dooney liked doing what? Peter, do you remember? He liked doing what he did in the country. He had to, he moved to the country to be able to live out his vision of things. He, he, what was the word? It was if when it comes to you, tell me, interrupt me. And the point being that Rush Dooney pretty much applied his view of the law to to uh, civilization or a human configuration that would look kind of like this. His ideal is almost libertarian. And the question is, which I, which I think is true, it's undeveloped. How would Mosaic, because Mosaic law does change, the application of the law changes. As you move into a monarchical era, you start to have kings. See, see there, here's, here's how you do it. What is the ruler of a tribe? What do you call him? A, a chief. So what is a king? Well, a king is a chief of chiefs. A king is just a chief who's become a chief over a whole bunch of chiefs, then you call him a king. So what's an emperor? He's a king of kings. Does that sound familiar? He's a king of kings. So here you have chiefs, here you have chiefs of chiefs, and here you have kings of kings. So each one gets more complex as you move forward, and each one gets more... There aren't cities here. There may be villages. Here you're going to start to have towns. You know, I doubt if Jerusalem was very bustling. It probably didn't look a whole lot like Prague, even in David's time, or like Manhattan. But over here you get full-fledged cities. I mean, you get high-powered cities. Uh with flush toilets and everything. Uh, so, so it becomes, becomes more citified and becomes more complex. So the question is, as you move through these various configurations and things get more complicated, so for example, by the time you get to Solomon, you're not just dealing with tribes. Solomon sets up administrative districts that purposely cut across the tribes, purposely. He's setting up a different kind of world. He's trying to cut through the tribalism. 
All right, so how does the application of Mosaic Law change as you move through these various configurations? All right, well now, what you find is that this sinful woman of the city, it's important, she is a woman of the city. That's an important detail. She's not a tribal lady, and we're really in an empire era, She's really, this, she's not even a woman of the town. She's not some small town. She's a woman of the city. And she is a sinner. And she comes to Jesus and she brings both, if you're going to be a prostitute, you got to be pretty. You got to smell good. You know, it's a market economy out there. You got to, it's only the prettiest, best smelling who are going to make the money. So she, on the one hand, she's bringing the the wares of her trade. This is part of my trade, is this alabaster flask of perfume. And you don't just go down to Walmart and buy, you know, this is hard stuff to get. This This is probably as valuable or more valuable than gold. So on the one hand, it's what she, it's the wear of her trade. On the other hand, it's just wealth. It is, it is worth an enormous amount. And she brings this to Jesus and she weeps all over his feet and she pours this, this uh, flask of uh, fragrant oil out on him. And uh, Jesus doesn't send her away. In fact, he gets mad at Simon. He says bad things to Simon. He receives everything about this woman. All right, I want somebody who here has a Bible. Who here dared to come without a Bible? Well, can I see your hand if you dared to come without a Bible? Peter, you can leave immediately. I want somebody who brought a Bible to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 23 and read verse 17 and 18. And you got to read it real loud, yes. None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, nor shall any of the sons of Israel be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the hire of the harlot for the wages of the dog into the house of the Lord your God, for any votive offering. For both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. Okay, now here what it says, I'll repeat this for the sake of the microphone. What it says is it talks about both ritual prostitute and a homosexual prostitute, either male or female prostitute. You shall not bring the wages of a prostitute to the temple. It's not acceptable. It's an abomination to God. Now, does this passage strike you as being a little weird in the light of Mosaic Law? Because who's the new temple? Jesus. And if you were applying, you can't ever say Mosaic Law is wrong or it's just been jettisoned, but somehow there's some difference in application because he's the new temple and he does not treat this woman and her wages and he's brought her wages to him as an abomination. But he treats her with extraordinary mercy and kindness and he receives her wealth. Just receives it. And then he gets mad at the guy who brings up what a scandal all this is. Who maybe, you know, maybe he was quoting Deuteronomy 23, 17, and 18. I don't know. So you've got some kind of change here in how Mosaic law is applied. And I don't have all the answers to this. But there is a there is clearly a change. Now let me tell you, first of all, what first brought this to my mind, in my school, uh, 
What they do in my school, Bakke Graduate School, it's a fascinating school. They found out, everybody knows this, if you bring pastors from the third world to America to go to seminary so they can go back to their country and be educated pastors in their, in their country, they don't ever go back. It's a really poor way to educate third world pastors. And it's really a bad idea to bring somebody here from, you know, Timbuktu so they can pastor their own people and then they become American pastors. It's really hard to go back after your kids get acculturated and so on. So they said, this is obviously a bad idea. Why don't we educate third world pastors in the third world? And by the way, this would be good for first world pastors too. So what they do is you go to one class in Seattle, the overture class, and then they send you, since almost all missionary work now all over the world is in cities, they send you to cities all over the world and you use that city as your laboratory. And you go there to see what the church is doing in that city and then you get all your education that way. So I've had the privilege, so a rich person in Boulder paid for this, it was really nice. I had the privilege of flying all over the world and going on three of these trips. I went to the Philippines, to Manila. I went to China, did the China trip. I went to China, you go to Shanghai, Beijing, and Xi'an. Xi'an, you know, there were two cities in the world that were a million or more in St. Paul's time. One of them was Rome, and the other one was Xi'an, which was the end of the Silk Road. It's a very ancient city. And then the third trip I went on was England, which was like a first world trip. But what you discover on any of you, any of you who've traveled at all in the third world, and you go to any third world city, what is every third world city filled with? What? What? I can't hear you. Art, A-R-T. Art? Well, yeah. That isn't what I was looking for. Prostitutes. Prostitutes. I mean, it's like there are more prostitutes than women. And one of the things that we did when we were in Manila, we were part of a ministry. There's a ministry there that redeems prostitutes in the street. We actually went out trolling for prostitutes one night. I mean, you find these prostitutes and then you, you know, you bring the gospel to them. Shouldn't use, that's probably a bad way to put it. <laughs> anyway, they're involved in this ministry. It's a wonderful ministry. It's a very hard ministry. But that's what first brought this to my mind is it's amazing how many prostitutes there are in these cities. Now, why is that the case? It is the case because you're moving from an economy that's like this to an economy that's like this and eventually like this. And all over the world it's like this. Now, the Philippines, for example, is an island, na island nation. I think about 3,000 islands. All these, virtually all these islands are little agricultural islands. Well, the agriculture is drying up or there's not as much of it. And all these people are moving to the cities and once you move to the city because all of these are shame cultures. Uh, if you can't make a living, you don't dare email home or write home or telephone home or go and say, I can't make it, i got to come home. You don't dare. You stay in the city and you do the best you can. And one of the few ways for a lot of these people to make a living is, to, is to, for these ladies to prostitute themselves. And lots of these prostitutes uh, have families. They have children they're supporting. 
They have brothers and sisters they're supporting. And they take the money that they're earning and they send it, they often send it back to the islands where they're, this is true anywhere you go in the world, this is true. All over the third world. With the citification of the world and moving into a world empire, global empire, economic empire, you have prostitution everywhere. Now I think that gives us some clue as to why the application of Mosaic law here is different than it is here. And it's interesting, if you go back to Deuteronomy uh, 22, uh, there is a death penalty for women who are involved in harlotry, but does anybody happen to know there is a special clause associated with that death penalty? Does anybody know what it is? If it's the daughter of a priest? Well, I, I think you're probably right, but that isn't actually what's in Deuteronomy 22. She's what? In the city. Well, it, it, it's if she's in the city and she doesn't cry out. But that, that actually, there's actually another. Well, I'll just tell you what it is because, I mean, I had to look it up myself. So, but it says, it says she has if if she has if she does not have the marks of virginity, she's brought out does not have the marks of virginity when she's supposed to get married. Then the elders of the city will come and stone her, and it says, because she has brought shame in her father's house. In other words, the implication is she has prostituted herself while she's been living in her father's house, and the peculiar crime is bringing shame on her father's house. As far as I can see it, we're told, and experts here in the law can tell us if if this is not quite right, but as far as I can see, it, the exhortation is, do not sell your daughter into harlotry, which is a t- this happens in the third world all the time, if we're, lest we be shocked by this. It says, do not sell your da- daughter into harlotry, lest you bring the land into harlotry. There's an exhortation. But I don't see a penalty on the daughter who's sold into harlotry. I mean, there's, she's not to be put to death. If she's outside her father's house, she's been sold. It's her father's fault. It's her brother's fault. It's not her fault, and she's not condemned for it. However, in Mosaic law, it's still the case that she cannot bring the wares of her, uh, excuse me, the wages of her, of her harlotry to the temple. She does not have temple privileges. She's an excommunicant. She's been cut off in that regard. And what you find in Luke is that she's now been accepted. Now, if you'll, what, what I want you to look at if, if uh, Let's go back to Isaiah, the 23rd verse. Isaiah, the 23rd chapter. I'm sorry, Isaiah 23. Because there's something interesting that begins to happen as you move through the Old Testament. It's about, it's in this era, somewhere in here, that you begin to get the prophets coming on the scene. And... I think, I think a fruitful way to read the prophets, you might just tuck this away for your Bible study or your preaching somewhere. The prophets come on the scene when you, and prophets, by the way, seem to live in the country mostly. Not, maybe not all of them, but they seem, the priests live in the city, but prophets seem to live in the country and they seem to speak into the city from the country. But the prophets are coming on the scene when the nation is citifying, if you will, when there begins to be this move into the city. And 
what a whole lot of their declamation to Israel is about it are crimes that begin to happen or transpire when citification begins to happen. In other words, there's, there's exploitation and there is suffering and there is victimization that transpires that is associated with moving from the country to the city. Uh, you know, that's exactly what you see when you go to the third world. You see these shanty villages and you see the, you know, tens of thousands of women involved in prostitution. Well, this is what you're, you're seeing, this terrible kind of thing that prophets are, are crying out against. So I think a whole lot of the prophets can be read. I'm just making this suggestion, a fruitful way to read the prophets. The prophets are those who are crying out against the crimes and the victimization that happens when people move from the country to the city. It seems to be associated with urbanization especially. And as you move into this urbanizing era, you begin to see there's a whole kind of new typology that begins to happen because as these cities develop, what we find is that cities begin to take on human characteristics. And the characteristics, the two, what are the two types of the city? And the Bible ends with this. And the Bible is in the middle. It's all over the Bible. What are the two types of the city? Anybody? Yes. Say that again. Yes. Yes. The bride and the harlot. So the harlot begins to be a symbol of the city. And uh, uh, we begin to find that God, God seems to do something that's different from Deuteronomy 23. Yes, sir. First, the city is a, is a daughter. First, the city is a daughter. and then, You're right. And then becomes the bride. You're correct. There's a development. Yeah, so, so first the daughter here. That's your point. And then there's maturation behind both. Okay, good. Yeah. And becomes either a harlot or a bride. Yeah. Okay. Something begins to happen in this era. And if you'll look at Deuteronomy, the 23rd chapter, the <coughs> 23rd chapter is all, and you'll find parallel passages in Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a whole lot about Tyre and Sidon, and it's really a commentary on Sodom and Gomorrah. Really get to go back to that, to grasp it. And so Isaiah 23, you have, these are really pretty much parallel passages, and in the 17th verse, all of 23 is about Tyre. Tyre is a prostitute. Tyre is a whore. But we also know that at one point, if you will, Tyre was a daughter and we know that, that uh, David's pal is, from, is the king of Tyre, right? So there's been this decline, and instead of being a daughter that's helpful to Israel, she's now become a prostitute, but in the 17th verse it says this, and it shall, it shall be at the end of 70 years that the Lord will deal with Tyre, and he will return she will return to her hire and commit fornication with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth, and her gain and her pay will be set apart for the Lord. It will not be treasured nor laid up for, for her gain, uh, uh, for her gain will be for those who dwell before the Lord to eat sufficiently for, the, for fine clothing, in other words, for the priests. So in other words, what you're beginning to see here is that the 
hire of a harlot and tire is, is all going to go to the temple. So there's some sort of transition that's happening. And then on a now the indication here doesn't seem to be it's it's not particularly redemptive, it's almost like it's just taken. But there is a whole prophet, of course, in the book of Hosea that is given to the idea of the redemption of the prostitute. See, that's what the whole book is about, that, that uh, Hosea marries this prostitute and she's redeemed. So you begin to have this whole typological transformation that happens through the Old Testament. And by the time you get to Luke, the, the story in Luke, which becomes in, not just typological but intensely personal, you find the redemption of the prostitute. So you're finding something new is happening. And I think it's associated with the fact that uh, this prostitution isn't necessarily willful or chosen, but it's a result of victimization. Now, it, at least that's part of it. I don't know that I want to say it's all of it, but it's part of it. Now, what we know, and I know i got to quit here at some point, but I don't care. <laughs> Uh, and I will try to be brief. All right, here's the problem you've got with a land economy. Here's my piece of land. I've got ten children. Why do you have the law of primogeniture in almost all civilization? What's the law of primogeniture? First, either inherits all or he inherits most of it. So if you don't have the law of primogeniture, and I've got ten children, ten sons, so we'll see, we'll be sexist here, ten sons, then I end up dividing my land amongst those ten sons. I can't quite count that fast, but <laughs> let's, that's supposed to be ten. It, and then let's say they all get married, and they all have ten sons, and see, by the time two generations, you can grow up maybe a plot of strawberries on your land. You can't make a living on that. So now it's true that in the ancient world and in, modern, in, in America in the, in the 19th century you had lots of land. You could keep moving west. You could go get more plots of land. But eventually, and it's not so simple because it might be that the, you know, the Seminole Indians are over there on that plot of land. And they don't think that you should be able to just come in and homestead. So it gets complicated real fast. So a bunch of these people have got to move off to the city. So that's why you have the law of primogeniture. The point is the eldest either inherits all or most, and then all the others got to go do something else. So they move into cities. So you get a citification of your economy pretty fast. Now, here's, here's basically what, here's the basic point I want to make, and I think I'll quit with this. Um, I personally, I am completely baffled by modern economies. Now, I understand farms. I mean, sort of. You know, you drop a seed in the ground, and a plant grows up, and then you harvest that plant, and you've made some. And, and see, I... I can still, I think I mentioned this last year, but it's just, it was one of those moments that was like a mystical moment. I was in a seminar with Ray Bakke's brother, Dennis Bakke, who is one of, used to be one of the hundred richest people in the world. He was the CEO of 
the biggest private power company in the world, outside of, you know, France and England are bigger because they're socialized. He's a Christian, and he's been trying to work out a Christian view of business. And I said to him at one point, I said, you know, I think, I just think profit is so mysterious. Where does it, and he just poo-pooed me. It was, it hurt me. It, re, it hurt me. It just, I was wounded. He just poo-pooed me. He says, oh, no, it's all there in the books. It's just all right there. Well, I don't think it is. I mean, I've never given up on that point. I think a profit, profit is so strange. Where does a profit come from? Why isn't the economy like you just get out of it exactly what you put into it? If you got out of it exactly what you put into it, it wouldn't be worth doing. But, you know, see, I understand there's this with an agricultural economy. Here's a little seed. I drop the seed in the ground, and I do put a little labor into it. But, you know, God makes it grow. It's magic. Where this comes from, the profit from this thing is just magic. I didn't make that happen. Now, that's easy for me to understand with the kernel of corn. I can even sort of understand that with a factory economy. I've worked in factories. But the economy we've got now? I mean, people sit in high-rise buildings in little cubicles, and they send electronic packets of information all over the world, and they're producing trillions of dollars worth of wealth. I don't get it. But it seems to be true. You know, the manufacturing's all over there, but the information for that manufacturing seems to be here. And you can't do, and it's a wonderful article, I don't know if you saw this wonderful article by George Gilder, and he published it in National Review about a year ago. And he, how he became a Christian. He said, uh, he said, I remembered the prologue to John, in the beginning was the word. He says, now, he says, what I knew as a smart economist, and George Gilder's real smart, he said, what I knew is that it's true that information always precedes whatever happens in an economy. Information is always first. And you can't explain that if you're a Darwinist. You don't get chaos and then information somehow happens. He says, you have information first everywhere. He says, the Gospel of John explains that. You became a Christian. It's a, it's a very cool story. All right. So uh, these people have to move to the city. And see, this, this economy is fairly comprehensible. But what happens in the city? Jane Jacobs' point is not common sense. It's one of those things that's paradoxical, that the city comes first and then the country follows. Her point is exactly Gilder's point. Information develops in the city. And then information is applied to the country. And all economies de depend on information. It's in the city that information happens. It's where it always happens, Most, you know, 99% of it. But, but getting there is not easy. See, I, I mean, modern economies totally baffle me. They're incomprehensible. They're incomprehensible to all of you. We don't know how they work. That was the whole point of Hayek and all these Austrian guys. The great epistemological point is that, is that nobody understands how it works. You know, the famous thing where Milton Friedman holds up this pencil and he says, nobody knows how this was made. It's, a, it's exactly true. Pardon? It was Leonard Reed. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. I th all right, Leonard, we want to get that right, straight. All right, so, so how is it that you move from this comprehensible economy to this economy? Well, what is it that harlotry always represents in the Bible? We, if you get typological, what's it represent? False Idolatry, false worship. All right. Now, an idol... 
you can always, the thing about an idol, except for modern idolatry, which is a whole lot more sophisticated, it's ideological idolatry, but all idolatry up until modern idolatry is something you can see. I want to be able to see this God, and I don't like this God of Israel because he's invisible. I want to be able to see him. So if I start worshiping something I can see, the interesting thing is I can never move out of a comprehensible economy into an incomprehensible economy. All idolatry can ever do is reproduce the past and probably reproduce it badly. It never produces anything new. So it's only as we move away from the visibility of idolatry to the invisibility of the living God that I can move into the city and see what are the promises? The promises are, well, if you invest in, there, there are three surefire investments in the world. Three. They are not gold and silver and Google. The three surefire investments in the world are widows and orphans and Levites. And if you invest in those, God says, God says something that's unique. It's not said anywhere else, to my knowledge, in any other ancient book. It is true that it has to have been true that economies grew, ancient economies grew, but they grew minimally. The idea of the ancient world was that the way wealth develops, beyond I can grow my, you know, my wheat fields and my wealth will develop to a certain degree, and then if I'm going to get richer, there are only two ways to do it, slavery and imperialism. I can either steal your labor or I can steal your goods, conquer you. Only the Bible, the Old Testament, says economies are wildly elastic. And God says, I'm going to do this strange thing. I will bless the labor of your hands. And when you look at the, you look at the curses and blessings in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, it says, when I bless you, economies become wildly elastic. And I do all kinds of incomprehensible things. And I create all kinds of new economies. And I give you all kinds of new information that you never dreamt of, that seems impossible to you. However, if you worship idols, there is no blessing on your hands. And then you have to move back to either slavery or imperialism if, if you're going to see a growth in your economies. So exactly what you see in a city like Manila is you see all these poor girls moving into the city and there's no place for them to work or be supported along with their brothers. So what do you get? You get economies of exploitation and victimization and destruction. And it's, it is a result ultimately of idolatry and it's only moving to the worship of the true and the living God who gives us information that in fact gives us a kind of economy that's maybe totally incomprehensible but produces wealth beyond all anything we can even imagine. So that's, that's my, see here's my point, that by the time you get to Luke, the story in Luke, that, that Jesus redeems this woman, takes her wealth, which is the wealth of idolatry, the wealth of exploitation and victimization, he takes it and it's a, there's a transformation. You get the same kind of transformation you're talking about in uh, Haggai, for example, and God will He'll do something new with the city. So you get to the end of the Bible, you got two kinds of cities. You got the whore of Babylon, 
which is an economy totally of victimization and imperialism, or you've got the, the economy of the New Jerusalem, which is an economy of incompre it's incomprehensible. We have no idea how it produces what it does because it comes out of the blessing of God, which is incomprehensible. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.